0: Amen, Hey, grab a, see you're already sitting. I have to change my opener now. Uh, grab your Bible. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're newer to the Bible, the book of Ephesians is a kind of journey into the New Testament. You're going to come across first and Second Corinthians, uh, Galatians, and then the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be uh, throughout the fall, just walking our way through there. Um, as you are turning there, I, I think you would agree with me that there's just some movies or some books that uh, from like the opening scene or the opening line they just like grip you and grab you and hold you like just super gripping beginnings that the moment that the thing starts you're like i I gotta keep going uh an example of this would be a relatively well-known series of films begins with these sounds here Every Star Wars fan in the room just feels it right here, right now, right? How many of you, like me, have never watched one full Star Wars movie? Come on! I thought I'd be the only one. Praise the Lord for all of you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Or, or how about, um, you know, uh, whether kid or adult, the, the, like the opening scene of the movie Up, the, like, wordless walking with Mr. Fredrickson through, like, his whole life and just uh, a few, you know, short minutes. I mean, right, we're, we're all, like, crying, right, by the be- very beginning of the movie. Uh, Charles Dickens' book, Tale of Two Cities, it, it, opening line, it was the best of times, it was the, it was the worst of times. Uh, some some movies, some books, just right from the get-go, they grab you. Uh, the Book of Ephesians, as Paul comes out of his introduction, begins. Paul Paul begins the body of this letter with one wonderfully worshipful, long, run-on sentence that is packed with some of the richest doctrines that you will find in all of the scriptures. This one sentence in the original language, one sentence in the original language that we're going to walk through today will lead us, will usher us into a deep worship of God in, in, in ways that, that we can't even imagine what Paul unpacks here right as this book begins. But before I get us into that one long wonderfully worshipful sentence today. I just want to talk about a few things from a higher level of the book of Ephesians. Um, The book of Ephesians begins like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The book of Ephesians is written, as we see here, by the Apostle Paul. It's written to a group of Jesus followers, to the saints, Jesus followers, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so we know who wrote the book. We know where the book is going or the letter is going. But I want want us to know, and I would be in agreement with a lot of biblical scholars out there who believe that Ephesus was not this letter's only stop. That this was a cyclical letter in nature. That the, the believers at Ephesus would have read what Paul has written here, and they would have passed it on to other Jesus followers gathered in other cities. And so I think what we have here is a cyclical letter. And, and, and the contents of this letter would indicate that in many ways. The book of Ephesians is literally almost split right down the middle with two very clear purposes that Paul has here. The first three chapters of this letter are all about the riches of the doctrine of all that God has done in Christ. The first three chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, they ground us in right doctrine. And it's why the first half of the series, we're just going to give the title of Resting in Christ. We're going to rest in Christ. Because what we're going to find in the first three chapters, much like we did in the Beatitudes that paved the way for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is in the first three chapters of this book, there's hardly any commands, there's hardly any imperatives. What Paul is doing is he's grounding us in right doctrine. Who is God? What has he accomplished for us in the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ? And what in the world does it even mean to be a Christian? And then in chapter 4, there's this, don't turn there, just let me read this for us. There's this, there's this linchpin verse that connects these two parts together. But in Ephesians 4, it begins with this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in chapters four and five and six, Paul's gonna get wonderfully practical of in light of all of this right doctrine, what does right living for the Christian look like And the second half of this series we'll call walk in Christ. Now, it, 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 it's, it, the, the order matters. The order of how stru- uh, Paul structured this matters deeply. Because if, if you're like me, we can often want to jump to Paul, just give me brass tacks. Give me the practicals. Tell me what to do. The problem with that in the Christian walk is uh, there is no right walking with Christ without right doctrine. Y'all, doctrine matters. Doctrine drives lifestyle. What we believe impacts how we live. And so we have to start with the right doctrine. And my hope today is even by the end of this one, did I mention it's one sentence we're gonna walk through today? By the end of this one sentence, right into the book, I hope we, our eyes are so vertical that it will lead us to wanting to walk out living lives. That would please Jesus Christ. And so the order matters. And it's from this introduction that verse 3, just look in your Bibles. I want you to see the length. Verse 3, all the way down to the end of verse 14, begins one long, wonderfully worshipful, run-on, spirit-led, amazing, glorious unbelievable, doctrinally rich sentence that Paul begins this letter with. So I want to read the entire sentence to us. Remember, it's broken up into multiple sentences in our English translation. It's one sentence in the Greek. And then I'm going to pray and we'll go back and chop it up in its parts. Blessed be the God and Father of his glory. Father, we read this, and I think all of us in this room are overwhelmed by what is listed here. We, we confess that so much of our minds can't even comprehend or fathom all that is right here. But Lord, most importantly, would all of this, would all of this that we're about to unpack, would it lift our eyes up to you? And Lord, in doing so, would it get our eyes off ourselves? So I pray for your help to announce, to proclaim, to herald this, and I pray for your help as we hear and as it sinks into our heart. God help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The beginning of this sentence starts perfectly. And I I want to take this uh, long, wonderfully worshipful, run-on sentence that we have to start the book of Ephesians, and I want to give you one long, wonderfully worshipful point that we'll build together throughout this sermon. But the first, the beginning of this point is this, blessed be God. Blessed be God. Paul starts where this book has to start. Paul starts where he, in a place where he doesn't know where else to start. He begins and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins and he says, Y'all together, let's get our eyes up. Let's go vertical. Blessed be God. Not blessed be us. Not even blessed be all the blessings that God gives us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can read that. When we're reading the Bible, we can read a line like that as if, yeah, Paul's just beginning with some cliche introductory christian statement. No, Paul is beginning with something deeply per- purposeful, that we would orient our eyes Godward, and we would orient our hearts Godward, that we would understand from the very beginning, blessed be God that he's the center of it all, he is the source of it all, he's the sustainer of it all, and he is supreme in it all. Now what does it mean to bless the Lord? To bless the Lord means to praise him, to extol him, to lift him high, to make much of him. So from Jump Street right here in this book, make much of God, Make much of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Extol, praise greatly God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins here with this statement, and it's very psalm-esque in nature. Throughout the psalms, you see this again and again. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Psalm 104 says, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Psalm 66, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. And all through the Psalms you see this. Let us bless the Lord and let us bless the Lord together. Let us get our eyes and our hearts God-oriented. And listen, it was so important for the original readers in this day, and how important is it in our day that we would orient our eyes vertically. That we would be reminded that I exist and everything in this world exists, not so that I can be blessed, so that we would bless the Lord together. How much money is pumped into marketing schemes that try to put us at the center of it all? Every day we're bombarded and we're, it's like mirrors are just going in front of us constantly that want us to make it all about us, that want us to make it all about anything but God. But we begin this book where this book must start, where all of this book is about and it's about blessing the Lord. It's about Him. It's about eyes up, God-oriented. He's the center, the source, and supreme in it all. And now... If we need a little bit of kindling for our praise the Lord fire, look at what he says next here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me read that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's interact with this now, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Have you ever been in a conversation where someone around the table says something deeply profound and everyone else around the table does that mooing sound when someone says, "Hmm"? And so you do it too, and you're like, ah, oh. But you have no idea what's profound about it. <laughs> and you have to ask your wife on the way home, like, what was, so big, what was the big deal about what he said? This is how I feel at first when I read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But like, what, but, but what does that mean? What does it mean that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Paul, I know it's good, and I know I want it, but I have no idea what that means, practically like what that looks like. Now, fortunately for us, Paul doesn't stop the sentence here. He goes on, and he goes on and on and on. And it's in his going on that I believe he's helping us understand what it means that we, Jesus followers, have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I believe what is to come, and you're even gonna see this in how I've structured the outline here. We're gonna kinda go into four sub points here under this reality. For he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so we're building this one long point today where we started and we said blessed be God. Why? For he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, Paul, but what does it mean to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? Keep reading. Even as he, what did he do? Verse four, even as he what? Even as he chose us in him, so God the Father chose us in Christ, when did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? That we should be holy and blameless before him. What does it mean that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, blessed by Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Well, the first place Paul wants to point our eyes to is this reality, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, how so? He has chosen us in Christ. He, God the Father, chose us in Christ. It's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and I want you to see, I want your eyes in the scriptures to see when he made that choice. When did he choose us? D- don't look at me, look at your Bibles. Open book test here. <laughs> Before The foundation, thank you, Allie, before the foundation of the world. Do you understand what that means? I did nothing of merit to be chosen. I wasn't chosen by Christ after I came onto this earth and did something that was morally upright. And the Lord looked down and said, that one, man. And even more comforting. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, before I ever stepped one foot on this earth and did many things that were morally deplorable. What does it mean That we're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where where Paul starts is this, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. and, And here's the purpose, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Remember, remember, remember. Remember all the way back to Genesis. What has God been after from the very beginning? God has been after from the very beginning a holy people set apart for his glory. Adam and Eve are created. They're made to be set apart to the glory of God. Sin enters the world, God doesn't give up on them. God calls a family of Noah and the ark and he's saving a people and he's calling them out that they would be uh, for the glory, for the glory of his name. They'd be set apart for his glory. God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, your people are gonna be set apart for my glory. All of that at the apex of Jesus Christ in which Jesus is calling to himself a people that are be set apart to the glory of God. We are to be set apart to God's glory. We are called, we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, that we should be set apart ones. This is why he chose us. But Paul's not done there. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How? He's chosen us in Christ. Look at where he goes next, verse five. End of four, and of five. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What else do we have as this every spiritual blessing in Christ thing? Well, the second thing we see is this, that he has adopted us in Christ. God the Father has adopted us through Christ. In love, constrained by his love, he predestined Us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, think of this language. We are adopted through Jesus Christ as sons and daughters. Very family of God. It isn't just that we're these little servant boys and girls who get to come and and, and, and reap some of the blessings of being in and around the family. We're in the family. He's adopted us. We were spiritual orphans and God looked at us constrained by his love and he says, I'm calling that son, I'm calling that daughter into my very family. Can I make the point again? Before I ever did one thing that was worthy of it in the spiritual orphanage, he called me and adopted me. And the sentence is just getting started. So, how have we been been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? He chose us in Christ. He adopted us through Christ. And this adoption was to the praise of His glorious grace, that we would praise His grace. So when you think about the fact that through Jesus Christ you have been adopted into the family of God, God's response that He wants to elicit in our heart is that we would praise His grace. But Paul's not done. What else does it mean to be blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Verse seven. In him, I'm just warning you, an amen corner is coming up, okay? Like, I'm just saying. Like, it's coming, be ready. What does it mean that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? The third thing it means is this, that he's redeemed us by the blood of Christ. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now, I want to tease something out here, because when we use a word like redeemed or redemption, redeemer, we in our day immediately think of spiritual things in nature, But you need to understand that original listeners, readers of this, redemption would have had a very tangible meaning in their society. Uh, People lived in slavery. Oftentimes the only way they would be freed from slavery is that a redeemer would come and pay a redemption price. And in the Redeemer coming and paying a redemption price, the one caught in slavery would be redeemed or would be freed. And so I want us to see if we can see those parts in play here a Redeemer, those in need of being redeemed, and what the redemption price was. In Him, we have redemption. We were the spiritually imprisoned. We were the spiritually enslaved. We needed to be redeemed, to be bought out of the slavery to sin. Who did it? In him, we have redemption through his blood. Through whose blood? Through Jesus' blood. Remember in church, it's either Jesus or the Bible. Every time, okay? (laughs) Jesus, Bible. Through his blood. Jesus is our redeemer, and I think we all know this, but one thing we have to never let get old or dusty or dry. what was the redemption price? His blood. His blood. And, and, and people, you know, if you're just coming in checking out church, this is the part we always want to grab your coat and be like, "What well, let's get out of here? Like, we want to wash you in his blood." And you're like, "Honey, let's get out of here. What does that mean? The price that needed to be paid for us to be bought out of our slavery to sin was Jesus Christ going to the slaughterhouse for sin. Climbing a cross and shedding his blood. Why? Because God has already declared that the penalty for sin was death. Up to this time, for the sin of God's people, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice until the Son of God comes down to earth and He is the sacrifice of all sacrifices to end all sacrifices. And through His blood being shed, we are redeemed. Now, there's more in all this. In Him, we have redemption, how? Through His blood. This redemption forgives us of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And he's lavished, verse 8, he lavished upon us, he lavished the riches of his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. I think we would all agree Those of us who have put faith in Jesus Christ, who believe that he has redeemed us from our sin, who understand he's gone gone to the cross and given his own life, we understand that we have been lavished by the riches of Christ's grace. Am I right? But don't miss this. The lavishing of those riches was according to wisdom and insight. You're like, okay, Brock, this is my profound moment. Like, why is that profound? Listen, uh, when a song on the radio comes up like this, and I'm, I'm not knocking it, some of you love it, okay? Some of you know where I'm going. Um, what's the song? Corey Asbury, Reckless Love. I, I, I love it, okay, I sing it too. But there was nothing reckless about God's love. I know it sounds good and it sings good, but what you see here is that the grace of God was lavished on us according to his wisdom and insight. To be reckless means to be out of control. God, God is so good. He saw me in my utter uh, ugliness and he pours out the riches of his grace on me and as he's doing it, it is in accordance with all of his wisdom and insight. amazing. And Paul's still not done. For he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Wow, he's chosen us in Christ. He's adopted us through Christ. He's redeemed us by the blood of Christ. And then Paul goes here. So we're chosen. We're adopted into his family. We're bought out of the penalty of our sin. We're forgiven for all of it. And then he goes here. Verse 11. Uh, often a new paragraph in our English translations. I don't know if I mentioned, it's still one sentence. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, what is the riches of every spiritual blessing in Christ that's unpacked there? It's this, that he has given us an assured inheritance in Christ. God the Father has given us an assured inheritance in Christ. Now, what we have in verses 11 through 14 are like rich, 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 rich rich doctrinally. How so? Uh, The first thing I want to point out about these verses right here is I want you to notice the movement between we to you to our. We to you to our. Let me read it again. In Him. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Paul, referring here to those Christians of Jewish descent. We, who were the first to hope in Christ. Believers of Jewish descent. Now, he changes to you. He moves to you. Verse 13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's writing to these Gentiles in Ephesus and beyond, and he's saying, guess what? This isn't only true for us uh, Christians of Jewish descent. Gentile, when you believed, this is true for you as well. And this is where he moves to the hour that we see in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This is a major theme we will see again and again throughout the book of Ephesians. That Jew and Gentile together as one in Christ. But I also want you to see the riches of something else doctrinally in these couple verses here. And it gets at this nature that we have an assured inheritance. How do we have an insured inheritance? Look again at verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth. What's the word of truth? Keep reading. The gospel of your salvation. Okay. Believers in Ephesus and beyond. When you heard the gospel message and believed in him, what happened after they believed? They were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You heard the gospel. You believed the gospel. You were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And this promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee, literally that idea is a down payment, The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Why is this so doctrinally important? Because I believe it's one of the clearest teachings Paul unpacks here that once we are saved in Jesus Christ, we will never not be saved in Jesus Christ. The one who called us to himself is keeping us in himself. The moment we believe we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, And that Holy Spirit's a guarantee of our inheritance until the day we're standing in his presence and we're seeing that inheritance with our own eyes. The one who's called us is keeping us. Praise God. Because I can't keep myself. I'm fickle as a pickle, right? (laughs) He's holding me. I can't unseal his seal. I can't revoke his down payment. This is how good our God is. Chose us when we are morally deplorable. And didn't just say like, hey, you can come have some of the fringe benefits. He says, come be a son, come be a daughter. Forgiveness of our sins by going to the slaughterhouse of a cross. And then saying, I've sealed you in a way that I'll never take that guarantee back and you will see your inheritance with your own eyes one day for sure. Why? Why would a God so holy, so other, so awesome, so majestic, do this for us. Three times throughout this passage, he's told us. Look back at verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 12 so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at how the sentence ends in verse 14 who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Why has God done this? For the praise of his glory. Why did he choose us? For the praise of his glory. And so, let us bless God. Why? Because he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, why has he done this? And he's done all this for the praise of his glory. All of this is for the praise of his glory. Yeah, but verse six said praise of his glorious grace. Are those one and the same things? John Piper has this to say on that nature: the implication of Ephesians one four through six. Listen closely now. Do the hard work of listening to this, because it's so good. The implication of Ephesians 1, 4-6 is that the grace of God is the apex of His glory. His goal is not just the praise of His glory, it's the praise of the glory of His grace. That is, the constellation of excellencies that make up the glory of God, reach their most beautiful overflow in the expression of grace for undeserving sinners like us. And what has now become clear in the enactment of the new covenant in his blood, is that the humble, willing, obedient suffering of Christ for sinners is the apex of God's grace. The place where that grace is most beautifully on display. So grace is the consummate expression of God's glory. And Christ in his suffering is the consummate expression of grace. That we would praise his glory. So why have we been chosen in Christ? For the praise of his glory. And why have we been adopted as sons and daughters? For the praise of his glory. Why have we been redeemed by his blood? For the praise of his glory. Why have we been given an insured inheritance that cannot be taken? It's for the praise of his glory. Why has he loved us like this? For the praise of his glory. Why did he go to the slaughterhouse for sin? For the praise of his glory. Why is he setting apart a holy people? For the praise of his glory. Why do you exist to give praise to his glory? Why do you live where you live? It's to give praise to His glory. Why do you go to school where you go to school? It's to give praise to His glory. Why do you work where you work? It's to give praise to His glory. Why do you have spiritual mountaintop moments of sheer joy? It's for the praise of God's glory. And harder, but equally as true, why do you walk deep valleys of disappointment and pain? It's for the praise of His glory. Why are we to bless the Lord? For the praise of his glory. And why are we to praise his glory? Because there's no one else whose glory can be praised. So, let's stand up and praise him.